I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they like, picked me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. Have a whiskey while we- Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and I am joined, as always, over Zoom, but this week by Matt Long. Hi, Matt. Hey there. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. So, Matt is a travel writer, blogger, photographer, podcaster, content creator, you name the media, he is doing that for travel, um, and we're delighted to have him on. So, I think the first question has to be, as it has been since March, how are you getting on in this strange world that we're currently living in, Matt? <laughs> well, you know, um, I think that's a complicated answer for anyone, as good as anyone, I suppose. You know, it's a challenging time, especially if you work in the travel industry, which kind of disappeared for a while. Um, so just trying to keep on and keeping everything active and hoping for the day where things, you know, things won't return to what we knew as normal, but, you know, at least uh, a little bit more of a liberal attitude towards leaving one's house. Yeah, indeed. Look, United States of Dramerica is, is a whiskey podcast, but we've sort of inadvertently become a little bit of a, a travel podcast to an extent. So um, around, I think, so this will be the fourth episode. So sort of 8% of our podcasts have had travel people on, which is unintentional, but fascinating particularly because travel is just so important at the moment not just for the industry but sort of what it says about how open the world is or how closed the world is so let's just start so you've you've sort of escaped from your house a little bit recently you actually went on a on what would be called a travel trip recently yeah no i have i've done a few trips so i live in maryland or outside of dc and like so many other places around the country we're in a pretty tight quarantine situation for many months. Um, around Memorial Day, it started to open up a little bit and was comfortable enough to do um, one short road trip followed by a little bit longer of a road trip. And then last week, I actually got into a plane, uh, which is a scary notion, uh, to fly down to Florida, which is kind of also of a scary notion. Uh, but it was good. You know, things are definitely different, though. And I think everyone needs to be fully prepared for that. Yeah, so actually, let's do this sort of forensically. Talk, talk me through getting on a plane and flying to Florida and being in Florida. What does that look like in today's world for those who haven't actually done the flying? Well, it's slightly terrifying at first. And I think before, what I've, I've talked to a lot of people who've done some limited travel recently, and we may not realize it, but we're all in a form of shell shock. Um, for a variety of reasons, being scared for multiple months. And so the travel, even if you love travel as much as I do, it is suddenly a little intimidating where it never was before. 
And so for people who are wanting to take their first trip, I would not advise flying to Florida because it'll be too overwhelming for them. They need to basically do what I did, which is do some shorter, close to home, one or two nights away and understand that not everyone may think the way you do. They may not behave the way you do. And you need to understand how you're going to respond to that. That being said, um, I carefully selected my airline because not all airlines, I don't think, it's subjective. Weirdly so. It shouldn't be subjective, but it is. I don't think all airlines are doing a fantastic job. So I flew with Southwest because they have a current promise to keep middle seats open so that you don't have to be close to anyone else, or at least they won't be on top of you. And I really like their um, health and safety measures. So I flew them. It's a two-hour flight or so to Orlando. And it was fine. It was uneventful. There weren't that many people, I think, on the way down, maybe 80 people on the way back, 40. So that's hardly a full flight. I sat mm-hmm. way in the back, had many rows to myself, and it was fine. You know, you wear a mask the entire time. Um, in airports, you wear a mask the entire time. And, you know, I think people are used to wearing masks to the grocery store or, you know, doing light errands perhaps around town. But once you're wearing a mask for two, three, four, five hours, it's a different, it's a different experience. And people need to be prepared for that as well. On Southwest, I mean, were people sort of furtively looking around each other, looking uncomfortable when if someone coughs, sort of moving even further away? Like, what was it? Was it, what was the atmosphere like? I would call it tense, but I don't think anyone was fearful of one another per se. Um, They were just in their own little zones and they were very happy to remain in those zones. So Mm -hmm. there weren't people clamoring to sit next to anyone else. Uh, Everyone was wiping down their stations with uh, their their wipes and doing what they were supposed to be doing, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. A couple of times in the boarding process, people got a little bit too close to me and I said, please, why don't we step back a bit? Uh, but it's good. And Southwest has always had a unique boarding process, which is what has made them successful in the past. And they've adapted even further. So now they're only boarding 10 people at a time, which is great. It's easy. Um, so there was no problems there. But throughout the flight, I mean, I didn't move. Um, they're not really doing food or beverage service. They're giving you a snack pack and a glass of water if you want it. Mm. Uh, so there's really not any reason to, to worry about other people. No. And then at the other end, you turn up in Florida. What was it like? Well, okay. (laughs) I went to Disney World, (laughs) which I understand is a controversial decision. Um, You know, I I wanted to go somewhere. It's one of my happy places. You know, I've been to 100 countries, all seven continents, but I I love Disney. It's fun. So I wanted to go down there and uh, see what the experience was like. And and so I was there. invited down and it was a good experience. And it was, I was really impressed by what has become the, the Disney bubble. Um, and they've done an incredible job, frankly, of uh, health and safety. Outside the bubble, I can't speak to because I think Florida is all over the map in terms of both its rules and regulations and enforcing them. But within the Disney bubble, I was very happy, safe and secure. Because I, I, yeah, I, I'm well aware of your, your love of Disney and you've obviously been- <laughs> For the parks and you do the rum Disney stuff. You know, you sort of do everything Disney. So how did, because it was a bit controversial. When I mean, Shanghai has been open for a while, um, the one in California is still not open. 
No. Before it opened, there was lot, you know, it was opening right when the spikes were happening. So everyone was telling how reckless it was. And also, there'd been a whole slew of not going to wear masks, you know, so viral so videos. Of people like was everyone being sensible and grown up and doing it all, all over the country? Well, they were. And it, it's also important to note that all the other <clears throat> Orlando parks had been open for weeks before Disney. But as you said, Disney opened at the exact wrong time. They opened on, like, I think the day that the worst spike was announced. It was just a, a PR nightmare, I think, for them. Um, and they're also, you know, they're, they're the elephant in the room. Uh, the entire industry will follow whatever they do. And so everyone watches them a little bit more closely. Uh, but they are very strict. If, if Disney knows how to do anything well, it's create a rule and then unabashedly enforce it. <laughs> and so they've done it. And there's, it is 100% strict. There is no deviance allowed from the rules whatsoever. Uh, they have entire squads of people going around the parks whose only job is to remind people to wear their masks correctly. And if it's slightly below the nose, they'll say, sir, that has to go back up. And that's it. And there's no tolerance for anything, not even on a ride um, and attraction. So they've, like I said, within the bubble, I'm, I'm very impressed and very pleased with the job they've done. Because I know they obviously had to adapt technology to make the rides uh, queueless or lineless, as you'd say in America. You'd um, think, but no. No. No, they haven't. The other amusement parks have, um, and they have just one without a virtual queue, uh, with a virtual queue. The rest aren't. What they've done instead is limit capacity um, down to about 20% of normal. So that's quite a reduction. Uh, and with that, not all those people show up every day. And so you don't have the need for a virtual queue because the theory and in practice, frankly, is that the lines, the waits aren't that long. The most popular park, I think the longest wait during the day might be an hour, which is annoying, but um, most of the other, other attractions are walk on only, which from a Disney perspective doesn't happen. <laughs> I guess psychologically, if you're in a line, even if you know it's an hour, it must feel because of the social distancing, even if you're only an hour away, you're probably standing three times further away from the entrance than you would be normally, if you see what I mean. So does it sort of feel like uh, yeah. a long line because of the, the time it takes to go? <laughs> it can, yeah. And people have definitely been freaking out at the lengths because uh, they have marked six-foot uh, intervals as far as the eye can see, anticipating wow. even the longest of queues, uh, and, which is good, though, because I've, like I said, I've done some regional travel, and I was up in Hershey Park, and they did not do that. And the one thing I've noticed about human nature throughout all this is that if you give them a rule that's being enforced, they'll follow it. But the moment there's an opportunity to deviate, they'll take that moment. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is about human nature. They, they don't always, or maybe it's American nature. I don't know. Um, but they'll look for a way to break the rules. And so what entities have to do, whether it's a hotel, whether it's an airline, whether it's Disney, is make sure there's a way for those rules not to be broken. Because it's, I guess it's a fine balance because some, if you look at the way the world has reopened, not just sort of travel specifically, but sort of restaurants and bars, there are some places which almost pride themselves on not not worrying about any of the rules and expecting their patrons to not as well. So, you know, come and sit on our deck and sit where you like and don't worry about it. And there are a certain type of patron who respond to that. But then there's the other side, which is come to our restaurant and here are all the rules and this is why we're going to make you safe. And there's another set of patrons that respond to that. So the fact you've had two travel experiences, one where rules weren't being followed and ones were, for you, I guess, as a traveller, you prefer the rule ones. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. And it's, it goes down. I don't want to get into politics, but it goes into the way that, you know, uh, the U.S. has really tackled the situation. And it's been a, on a county by county level, which is probably not the best way to handle a, a pandemic. Um, you know, and I saw this driving from Maryland to Virginia, North Carolina and South Carolina. North Carolina did a wonderful job with restaurants. You know, they had entire table areas blocked off, big cross marks can't be here. Uh, if you wanted to sit at the bar, they would move the chairs six feet apart. Drive down to South Carolina, and it's as if nothing had happened. And so, you know, uh, yeah, the, the people aren't that different from each other between North and South Carolina. Um, but it's, it's the rules and then their enforcement. That's, that was the difference. Right. So obviously, it's your job. And, you know, you were invited to Disney and you went. Um, if it wasn't your job, given you love sort of Disney anyway, were you ready to go to Disney? Would you have self-selected to go and do this trip now or would you have left it longer, either because of the Disney bit or because of the Florida bit? No, I probably still would have gone. Um, you know, I, I think at the beginning of all this, I had my mind's eye, my imagination in a few places that I would like to go initially. And that was certainly, you know, one of them um, just to kind of get back and enjoy just some unadulterated fun you know, without, without normal stress, you know, and it turns out that's, you can't escape that anywhere nowadays. You know, you're going to have the COVID stress, even in Disney, they can't even erase that. But uh, yeah, and no, I probably would have self-selected either way. <laughs> Ideally, it would have been Disneyland, but you know, they're closed. <laughs> so, you know, you are under normal circumstances, a traveler, as you said, I think slightly early on, you've been to a hundred countries. In the last, you know, for four months, you've relatively barely done anything in that time under normal circumstances what would that have looked like for you in your schedule is it five to ten countries and lots of travel every week i it really um it ebbs and flows i, you know, I like to call myself a traveling homebody so uh when i'm at home i want to travel and when i'm traveling i want to be home <clears throat> i do try to uh balance my schedule uh, just because i have a partner and a home and you know I need to balance all those concerns. So on average, about a week a month is, was always something I'd shoot for. Um, some months that would be a lot more, some months that would be a lot less. It really does. There's definitely a travel season within the travel industry. And so spring to summer to early fall typically is when I would travel the most. Um, and I had trips planned. I had places I was going to go. I was there conferences this fall I was going to attend and none of that is happening. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a big shift. Um, not only from professional, but you're right, mental point of view as well. So where would you have gone? Where did you actually have to cancel trips to? Uh, you know, typically I find myself in Europe a lot. Um, I, you know, I do um, projects in Germany and Ireland uh, quite often throughout the year. Uh, there was a conference uh, that I attend every year. It shifts locations. I think this year it was going to be back in the UK. So, um, yeah, a lot of those spots. Um, we should, I often forget to do this, but this is a whiskey podcast. We should talk about whiskey. Um, or at least we'll start with an alcohol segue. So we first came across it. We've never met each other, uh, but we've come across each other's radars because when I was with the British government, a different bit of my organization flew some travel people across to the UK to talk about the gin industry. And you were lucky enough to be sent to Scotland. I was. It was a very interesting trip. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad I did it because I admittedly knew nothing about gin <laughs> before that trip. That's for sure. Had, had you been to Scotland before? Yes. Yes. And had you done the sort of distillery golf 
stuff that happens? Not really, no. Uh, so I've always had a passion for travel ever since, you know, as young as I can remember. And uh, the summer after I graduated from college, I just saved up and uh, spent about six weeks backpacking just around England and Scotland. So um, during that time, it was very slow to travel and really got to know both countries pretty well. Uh, I saw a lot of it. Not um, and since I've gone to, I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland and Wales. And, yeah. I love it. I'm, you know, I'm one of those annoying American Anglophiles. So <laughs> any opportunity for me to go back is great. So when you were doing the gin, did you do any whiskey as well? Or were you? Very, no, you know, no, no. The government was very good and very specific. <laughs> so we were tasked um, with uh, certain spots and that's what we did. Very good. So uh, tell, me, tell me about gin in Scotland. Sure. Uh, well, I, as we were discussing before the podcast, uh, you know, a number of years ago, laws had changed within Scotland to allow for more independent whiskey distillers. Uh, and But you would still have to, of course, go by the traditional laws, which says that a whiskey has to be aged for three years and one day. Uh, so what is an independent whiskey distiller to do for three years and one day in order to make some money? Um, that's to find an alcoholic substance, which you can produce very quickly. And gin is it. Um, it takes two weeks. And so that's what they do in Scotland, um, or they did. <clears throat> And hopefully they're still keeping it up. Uh, and each one had a very unique uh, set of um, uh, aromatics that they would include and botanical flavorings. And yeah, they made their own. Um, my favorite example to give is in St. Andrews. Uh, you have Eden Mill. And they actually, when the Open Championship was there, they produced um, a special gin for the golfers that uh, was called Golf. And in that, they included um, shavings of um, hickory from hundred year old clubs. <laughs> so if you're a, a golf fanatic attending the open, open championship in St. Andrews, uh, they knew you would have to purchase that. That's probably one of the best marketing decisions I've ever heard of. It's extraordinary. They're probably the nicest people I met. They were lovely to chat with. So. <laughs> and they had a fascinating story. So um, I really, no, it was great. And St. Andrews is a, a lovely community to be in. Even on the perpetually rainy day, of course, I was there on a rainy day, um, but it was great. It was nice. Shavings of golf club. There you go. It's brilliant. So let's just talk about how you got into travel. So you were an enterer of sweepstakes and competitions, and you won one, and then your journey started. More or less, uh, you know, as I said before, though, my, I have a job, and back then, you would actually mail out resumes, and so I mailed out many resumes, and the first one I got back was in domestic politics, which never really fascinated me that much, but it was a job, so I took it, <laughs> and, you know, before I knew it, more than a decade passed, and, you know, it definitely was never my passion, never anything that I particularly enjoyed, and, and you're right, um, after that decade mark or so, I was entering some travel-related sweepstakes because, yeah, I love to travel. <laughs> and if I could win a way to do more, that was fantastic. And one of the ones I won was during the anniversary year for the uh, trivia program game show Jeopardy with Alex Trebek. And they actually selected 25 winners and their traveling companions to join Alex and the Jeopardy team on uh, basically a private cruise around the Galapagos Islands which is extraordinary. <laughs> and that very much, you know, my partner and I had made travel an important part of our life uh, before then, you know, but 
Galapagos is on a different scale, of course. And so that really reignited that sense of exploration. You know, going to Paris is always lovely, but you don't feel like an explorer per se, uh, <laughs> guidebook in hand, tour bus. Uh, but around the Galapagos and Ecuador, it's a little bit different. <clears throat> and when I returned, I really was looking for an outlet to, to help share some of those stories. And I'm not a tech person by any stretch of the imagination, but somehow I managed to cobble together uh, a website and a blog and turned it on and started telling some, some of my stories and was in a position to leave my full-time job. Uh, it's been nine, eight, nine years ago now and wow. never looked back. Amazing. But a Jeopardy cruise. It was an expedition cruise. So it's a small ship um, done by Lindblad and National Geographic. Uh, and National Geographic and Jeopardy had a long history. So there's a tie-in there. So it was a National Geographic ship. Um, doing expedition-style cruise around the Galapagos. And those ships don't hold very many people to begin with. So when you had the winners, their guests, that's 50 people. Then all the, the cast and crew from the show was probably another 50, 60 people. You know, the ship is almost full. Amazing. What's Alex Trebek like? <laughs> He's a lovely man. Um, you know, takes a, a few days warm up to, uh, but we ended up having multiple breakfasts with him at his choice. Um, his wife is absolutely, though, extroverted as all get out. And... Uh, equally lovely if not more so sorry alex but alex is a great man and uh, really enjoyed the week amazing amazing and obviously if you hadn't won that do you think you'd still be sitting in a cubicle somewhere or do you think it was inevitable that something would inspire you to make the big move good question uh you know i think so many people go through their lives doing things that may not make them happy um but it's comfortable and and, and changing things is very difficult you, you need a catalyst of some sort uh, people need to be almost shocked out of doing the quotidian they really they need to be pushed and i'm not sure if i would you know but when you are unhappy in one part of your life, it does absolutely affect every other part of your life. And, and I saw that. I saw that when I made the change. You, you may not even realize it at the time. You may not even think you're unhappy <laughs> um, until you look back at it and it's hindsight. But I, I think something would have had to have changed for me. I mean, there was just no way I could have kept doing, being, <laughs> being a lobbyist here in D.C., especially now. My Lord, could you imagine? Well, Indeed. <laughs> you, could, you could say it's now not a great time to be a travel writer. Uh, <laughs> there'll be people out there who, and actually probably the sort of people who listen to your podcast, probably more than mine, who are, who, who are you know, obsessed with travel and think that being a travel writer must be the best job in the world. Um, and I'm sure there, it is in many ways. Tell me the bad things about being a travel writer, a full-time travel writer. Oh, poor, woe is me, right? Now it's, uh, well, you're right. People do romanticize it a lot, but it's a job and it's a job just like any other. Um, there are many benefits to it, there's no doubt. My office may look different, but it's very much a job. So when I travel with work, uh, it is work. It's not how I normally vacation. It's not normally how I choose to do things with a different hotel every night or, you know, busy, busy schedule doing work at night. Um, you know, it definitely has its drawbacks, but it has so many perks and it's been so rewarding for me. Um, but people, you know, my job is to make it not look like a job as well. <laughs> so people looking at it may see me on a beach, not, not really understanding what went behind that um, to get me on that beach. Presumably, particularly in the early years, 
you know, just like an aspiring actor and so on, if you want to do something that's really fun and interesting, presumably it's very hard. Like being on the trip is one thing, but to, you know, being able to generate the income and make it work and make your schedules work, it must have been a, quite a hard road at the beginning. Yeah, it's absolutely got to be your passion. Otherwise, you, you'll never be able to, <laughs> to see it through. I mean, it takes years and years of just plugging away without any expectation of any compensation. Uh, to get there. I mean, it's, it's got to be your passion. It just does. It's got to be something that you love doing more than anything else. And I think that's true of, of all, you know, any job that we do. It's, you, to be really successful at it, it's got to be your passion. Yeah, absolutely. And that's okay if it, your passion is accounting. That can be a thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's whatever you love to do. That's what matters. Yeah, no, look, actually, my, my ironic choice of um, example, but my wife is an accountant and she does love it. She loves, unfortunately... I don't quite get it. She loves nothing more than sitting down in front of a spreadsheet and using clever macros. And uh, she enjoys that part of it in a way that I'm not sure other people understand. So yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Now, being a travel writer coming off the back of a global pandemic that's changed the face of travel, what's that going to look like for you in terms of where you can go, how much you can earn, who's inviting you to do what? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a million dollar question right now because uh, just no one knows. Um, and so, you know, folks like me have been looking more and more at doing regional trips, doing things that are realistic within the United States. I mean, it's not even very realistic for me to even fly out to California right now, to be honest. Um, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but I can do things within my region. As far as international travel goes, I mean, I think that's really just been I think we have to say goodbye to that for this year. Um, at least from my point of view, I can't imagine destinations wanting to encourage that just now. Um, and it's tough. It's a tough time for everyone involved. There's no doubt. Uh, and we don't know what the next few months will look like. We don't know if a vaccine will emerge, if that will enable travel, what things look like, you know, right now only 26 nations around the world are accepting Americans. And that's not very many. Wow. So, <laughs> and even then most of them have, restrictions in place to go along with that. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to leave the country now, you can. You have to really want to leave the country now. <laughs> and you have to have a lot of time saved because a lot of places are requiring quarantines and testing. You've got to do your homework. The days of jumping on a transatlantic to Paris for a long weekend are, are no longer here right now. Hopefully they'll come back soon, but they're not here right now. Yeah, but do you think there will be a, a sort of, certainly for, for you guys, a bit of a bounce in the sense of as things are beginning to open up, locations, particularly, let's say, in America, looking for staycation tourism, will be desperate to make some noise in the marketplace and will use people like yourself. So is there going to be or has there already started a sort of slew of invitations to come and stay places or do things in places that maybe you would not have been invited to before? Well, I mean, I think we definitely are having to <laughs> rethink our expectations uh, and what we write about, that's for sure. Um, we have to be more realistic in our coverage, you know, whereas earlier this year, I may have tried to pitch uh, content for Hong Kong or mainland China. Now it, it would be yeah, Southwestern Pennsylvania and, um, and you know, the, the foothills of North Carolina. So uh, it, it is having to change the kinds of jobs that we pursue. Absolutely. Um, as far as more places wanting us, it's dicey. It's dicey from a political point of view. It's dicey from a public relations point of view. Do you want to be seen as encouraging travel when you're telling your citizens to stay home and wear a mask? I don't know. It's, I think most places right now are just laying low 
um, and hoping for the best. And what a lot of destinations have actually done is look inward towards their own citizenry and try to promote not just, yeah, staycations, I guess. Um, so cities like Philadelphia, I know, um, have really started to promote tourism by Philadelphians, you know, come to your city. Um, but yeah. you know, so many places are still closed. I mean, I looked up just the other day because I want to go to one of the Smithsonian Institution Museums here in D.C. and they're still closed. I was surprised. I thought they'd be open, but no, they're closed. Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky balance. We actually, we went away a couple of weeks ago. We drove two hours to mountains and Big Bear Lake. And it was a weird, it was a really complicated holiday in the sense, we, you know, Airbnb's running, we booked a place you're allowed to, it's fine. There's actually very few cases up around there. We went... And, you know, we took our own food. We didn't go to a restaurant. We didn't go out on a boat because we didn't want to be lining up with other people wanting out on boats. There was quite a lot of people there. There was sort of mask wearing, but there also sort of wasn't. And you could tell the local amenities were sort of desperate for income because it's that sort of place. And, and the restaurants looked busy when we drove past them, at least the outdoors part. But there was a part of me that you could sort of tell people wanted people there to make the money from their rentals and and so on but they also sort of didn't as well because they were worried what they might bring with them particularly because LA's been spiking and there's a sort of weird discomfort there was much less smiling I felt between us and other people either other tourists or other locals than I feel like I've ever seen on another any other parallel trip yeah, destinations like that are actually a particular challenge. Um, any rural destination is because should something happen, they don't have the um, medical infrastructure to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I remember at the beginning of all this, uh, Moab in Utah, which is home to two national parks, uh, Arches and Canyonlands. Beautiful. They're, you know, Arches gets 5 million visitors a year before this year. Um, Moab you know, went front and center and says, please do not come here. Do yeah. not come here to escape anything because we have one small medical facility, there's no ICU. We have no ventilators. If you come and bring something, we're goners. And, mm-hmm. and that's just reality of it. You know, they can't airlift their entire populace to the Salt Lake City. So, you know, as we do start to venture out, we have to be more thoughtful than ever in ways that we haven't had to be. And, yeah. you know, it's difficult. It's very trying. It's this travel right now is with a whole lot of moral implications <laughs> that I never expected. And I think a lot of people are having trouble with, and that's why I've seen, even as things open up, even as um, lift and flights increase, as Disney opens, people aren't going and they're not going because they're not sure. And uh, you know, I, 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 the industry keeps talking about pent up demand. No, there's not. <laughs> Would people like to go? If you ask that question, yes. Will they go? Probably not. They're going to do something that makes them comfortable. And that's going to be a driving distance away. It's going to be staying somewhere where they feel safe and secure. And that's it. I mean, it sucks, but it's it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 think that, I think that's right. I mean, there's obviously a lot of people in the travel industry talking everything up, as you'd expect. But I think you're right. It's interesting the way you phrase it as well. There is a sort of moral complication to travel and encouraging travel at the moment. There is. I mean, we talked about me going to Florida. Um, I waited two days for an incubation period. I got my COVID test. I've been quarantining since the moment I got home. And I'll say that way. Mm. You know, I wish everyone would do that. They probably won't. But, you know, I, that is part of it. Yeah. So w- one of the, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on one part of the travel industry, but I, this is the part that the, the layman will struggle with the most. And you, you mentioned cruises earlier. And I know the cruise you were on wasn't, 
um, sort of the big thousand people cruise ship thing. But cruise ships and the future of that industry, discuss. <laughs> it's challenging. <laughs> uh, it, it's very complicated. And, you know, I, I, I just saw some survey yesterday that's, you know, from the cruise line industry saying, you know, people are ready to come back. You know, they're not. They're not ready to come back. Uh, some cruise lines are starting up. Um, in Europe, we're seeing some river cruise lines around uh, the UK and the Nordic countries. We're seeing some small cruise lines start things up again. Um, here in the States, I think one company is called UnCruise, uh, and they do very small ship cruises, mostly around um, San Juan Islands up in Washington State. Um, and that's it. You know, so if you look at one of the mega ships that has five, 6,000 people, yeah, there are so many things to take into account that I think it's impossible to have a cruise until things are more settled because you have to do social distancing. Uh, so what does that mean? It means you are going to have to sail at 20, 30% capacity. How do people use the elevators when you only get one couple in at a time? It'll take hours to get to dinner. Once you're at dinner, you know, what do you do? Um, no buffets. Uh, you know, a lot of cruises depend on what's called tendering. Those are small ships you take from the large ship to get to shore. It's going to take many times longer with social distancing to accomplish that feat, which was not quite to begin with. So there are so many practical logistical concerns. I just, I don't see how they come back into existence without some sort of resolution to COVID. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the CEO of Carnival, but I, I just don't see how it's possible. Am I allowed to ask you if, see, I asked you this sort of question about Disney, you know, would you have gone if you were invited? If you got an email later today from a cruise ship saying, come and do a week-long cruise, would you do it? It would depend on the cruise line entirely, uh, the size of the ship, where they're going. And that's another thing, destinations, they can't go anywhere. <laughs> so where are they going to go? I don't want to do a cruise nowhere around Miami. It sounds dreadful. And they're not going to do Miami either. So I, that's their main hub. Uh, it would depend on the cruise line. So I know, you know, I, I, I've written a lot about luxury travel and those tend to be smaller ships and I would trust them more. Um, you know, and I wrote about it in May. So I went to a luxury resort up in Pennsylvania. It, the luxury sector is going to be doing things the best as far as health and safety. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people will be following their lead, but we'll see uh, Would I go on a 5,000 person one and no, and it's not necessarily from a health concern. It it's from, I don't think the experience would be fun right now. Yeah. I didn't have a health concern going down to Florida. I was worried. It just wouldn't be fun. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Everyone's got their own personal tolerance for returning to life as normal. So I think I'm on the conservative side of this. Like we haven't been to a restaurant since March. And there's a sort of fake garden. There's a place near us with beautiful little fake grass and shrubs. And I walked past it the other day, and people were drinking a glass of wine and having steak. And I thought, wow, that looks quite nice. Maybe we should be returning to this. And then the waiters came out with masks and face visors. And for me, even if it's safe, and obviously the fact they're wearing them makes it safer, going out for dinner should be fun and relaxing. And as soon as somebody's serving you in a visor, then it sort of cuts through that and ruins the atmosphere. So I'm not going to, I don't think it's safe, because I think it probably is, certainly for outdoor, but it just doesn't feel fun and relaxing. So particularly with kids who touch everything. So I think we're just going to sit out restaurants for a while and just do takeout. Yeah, and everyone's different. Um, yeah, no, a lot of people have said the same thing. 
So in the parallel universe where you could travel anywhere in a COVID-free world, if you could get on a plane tomorrow, where would you go? Ah, that's a good question. Um, it would probably be to reconnect with places that I love. Uh, I'd probably go to Iceland right now, actually. I love Iceland. I've been there five times. Um, from the East Coast to the US, it's a short, easy hop. Uh, social distancing is easy. <laughs> so I'd love to go there. Very good. Now, if you have to travel somewhere in the States, if again, COVID-free, you could get on a plane or jump in a car and go anywhere in America tomorrow where would you go love to explore more of the western um states and the national parks i had a, a brief taste of it last year i did a, a road trip uh, along southern utah with the mighty five national parks uh, which is fabulous and you know, i haven't spent as much time in the rural part of the western states as i would like to and i'd love to i'd love to go up i've never been to yellowstone or yosemite i'd love to go see those in person and definitely by car though i'd love to do a road trip out there <laughs> super right look matt uh, last question and this is the question we ask every guest, which is, if you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, what would it be, and where would it be? Ah, that's a good question. Um, probably uh, Lagavulin with Oscar Wilde, wherever he would like. What a great People normally <laughs> saying, let me think. And Lagavulin with Oscar Wilde, anywhere he likes. That's a brilliant answer. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Matt, traveler. Temporarily traveling less, but looking forward to traveling more. Thank you very much for your time and your insights today. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun to talk about travel. Mm, I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slon